0: Sustainability Unwrapped, a conversational podcast about responsibility, ethics, inequalities, climate change, and other challenges of our times, where science needs practice to think about our world and how to make our society more sustainable one podcast at a time. We welcome our listeners to a new season of the podcast Sustainability Unwrapped, By the microphone is Anna from Humpkin School of Economics and our key theme for this podcast season is responsible organizing. And we will discuss how responsible organizing can support building a more sustainable future. In each episode, we invite experts to discuss topics such as intersectional inequalities, cross-sector collaboration for responsibility and much more than that. In our previous episodes, we mostly talked about human interests in light of sustainable development. Despite all the growth and development, we still observe the interconnectivity of human and non-human animals' well-being, and we humans still remain a part of the natural system. So I suggest in this episode, we discuss more about organizing human interaction with animals in a more responsible way. And to dive into that discussion, we have Linda Taubek with us uh, today in Hamken studio. Uh, She's an assistant professor in management organization at Hamken, and uh, she's here with us today. Hi, Linda.
1: Hi, Anna. Thanks for inviting me. (laughs)
0: Thanks for coming over here to be with us. So to begin with, I really like to check in with you about the terminology. It's a very unusual way how we start a podcast. I think we never did that before, but in this case, in this discussion, I think this is uh, really important, and it's going to set the entire scene for our discussion. Uh, Of course, the book has served the background for scoping our episodes for this uh, season of Sustainability Unwrapped, and particularly in the book chapter you have written, uh, when you talk about people and animals, you refer to them as human and non-human animals. Does such terminology impact the way we understand the relationship between humans and animals? And if yes, in what way?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for this question. And (laughs) yes, definitely. Um, It's more correct, scientifically speaking, to talk about human and non-human animals, because of course, humans are animals, but it's also a political aspect. Uh, because it implies a sense of inclusivity if we use human and non-human animals so it actually means that we share this earth with other living beings who happen to be non-humans so it's relationally much more inclusive and What I mean when I say politically speaking, it's important is that we really think about which words we use, what concepts and categories um, that we, for example, print in publications or we use in teaching. It really says a lot about how we see the world and how we see the others in the world with us. Is it relational? Or is it does it create a sense of othering or difference? And especially when we talk about individuals or groups that traditionally have been marginalized in society, it's really important to to pay attention to words. So, So this is the case when we talk about race or ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or in this case, species.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, using human and animal kind of these two words would create some sort of separation, right? Do you understand this correctly?
1: Yes, exactly. Because we're actually separating humans from the natural world, and it's incorrect, actually. Because, like I said before, humans are animals, and we create these categories of of human versus animals, um, and then it becomes really an 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 issue of 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 separation rather than inclusivity and it becomes this relationship becomes a factor of othering so i'm sure you've you you've come across this this terminology of other or othering in in other episodes regarding um, equality and, and maybe gender as well. So this is the same thing when we're talking about species. And it's really important to think about this when we're creating policies or choices that are then based on the categories that exclude others rather than include others. So then it becomes problematic, this separation. So, in the case of non-human animals language is especially problematic because of different value categorizations that stem from this master narratives that we have in western um, systems and also in the Cartesian belief system about duality. So, So what I mean there is categories such as human versus animal nature versus culture and it creates this anthropocentric hierarchy of who matters and who doesn't
0: well i think we're here getting to a very very interesting discussion so i want to continue with that but before i still want to ask one more like kind of introductory question because i already feel like you know so much and you have generated lots of insight into this topic could you tell us and like me and listeners about your experience in researching this topic. So how did you get to this point of view and uh, why this is interesting for you personally and professionally?
1: Well, thank you for this question because usually we we don't get questions about our personal experience when it comes to research and publications. But for me, this topic goes beyond being merely interesting, or um, you know, it's very personal because I really see it as my moral responsibility. So since the start of my research career, I've studied different multi-species organizations and different interactions of of humans and non-human animals at work. So for my PhD research, I did this ethnographic animal shelter study in Australia. And part of that, I found themes of power and emotions that were really regulating the organizational processes um, in that organization and then very much affecting both the human workers and the non-human animal lives as a result. So, so I think that the topics that we research really says a lot about our values and what we hold important um, research is never neutral <laughs> or very seldom, especially in social science research. And, and so it's really personal for me and and my goal in my research activities has really been about trying to create uh, a more inclusive agenda. Uh, for non-human animals and an ethical agenda for non-human animals also in business and organization. And I think that if we can understand the underlying elements of power and emotions in how we treat non-humans today, then we can also illuminate certain aspects of, of, of us as humans.
0: And I could definitely agree to something you said before. In our previous podcast, we've seen how research that people do affected their personal values and that they learn something. Or, For example, uh, recently we had episodes episode about social media use, like how understanding social media in more details affected their own user profile as a social media user. So we do within podcasts see how the belief system and value system of a researcher has also evolved within how they obtain more and more knowledge. Could you tell us maybe that there are some if there are some topics that are on top of your agenda at this moment or has they always been on top uh, because of some maybe irrelevance relevance or importance?
1: Yeah, yeah. So top of my agenda so far has been to answer the question I kept getting before, um, what do animals have to do with business? And I use the word animals here very specifically. Um, I got a lot of questions about this from from other academics, from students, etc. in the business school. And so um, recently I published a couple of months ago a, a, a book. In collaboration with over 40 other scholars so so this was kind of my big project today wow. it was, I, I edited made this book called the oxford handbook of animal organizational studies so making a whole new subfield that actually includes and in, examines our relationship with other animals in different commercial and societal um, organizing activities so this was kind of the top of my agenda in answering that question uh, of what do animals have to do with business? So so so, so now it really continues um, to be about examining the current issues regarding ethics in different commercial activities to explore how we humans organize our workplaces, our institutions, home activities, and communities in certain ways. Um, that either include or exclude non-human animals or their interests or their perspectives and what these processes say about us, what they say about um, who we are as a species, how what it says about us as a group and what it says about us as individuals. So when I think about all these organizing activities and how they intersect with how we share space on this planet, with other animals, with with plants, with trees, with rivers and the land. You know, we humans, of course, are the ones who are detrimentally affecting the current and future well-being and safety of everyone else, including ourselves.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. I Some time ago I read an article about uh, how people try to uh, get away from uh, those feelings uh, because they're workers in the slaughterhouse, and the, uh, there's really like it's as you say, there's nothing human in how they could do that kind of job. So, I, I totally get your point that you, you pre- previously brought up.
1: So, there's a field called slaughterhouse studies, so mm-hmm. and dirty work, and I've done also um, research within dirty work, and um, a lot of uh, people who don't kill their own food, then put a lot of uh, stigma on individuals who are working, for example, in slaughterhouses or Mm -hmm. as butchers and in these professions. And there's a whole field called dirty work about that. Um, and I call those animal dirty work. Um, There's a recent article that I published on, on, on that in Work, Employment and Society that really looks into the construct of stigmatized professions and occupations and it's actually offsetting those dirty tasks to individuals who often are themselves marginalized such as you know, immigrant uh, workers, etc. And of course, what we saw under COVID is that these slaughterhouse facilities are the breeding grounds of, 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 of disease. And those individuals who are marginalized are then the ones mostly affected. So I think we have to also be very careful about thinking about, you know, um, putting certain stereotypes or um, thinking about those people who are, you know, doing those tasks as somehow bad or uh, somehow uh, immoral, because it's actually the consumers who are buying the products in the supermarket.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, we talked a lot about the consumption, and of course, when we uh, talk about animals, The first thing that might come to consumers mind is, of course, about animal based food products. But uh, now I started to wonder how else are the animals taking into global agenda?
1: So you're absolutely correct. Um, It's it. It's not just about food. Consumption goes to and production (laughs) consumption and production system goes to other systems as well you know it's about the companion animal industry or if you want to you know call it the pet industry you know this industry is worth billions and billions Um, it's also the entertainment industry things like for example horse and dog racing that are you know, societally seen as as normal activities for entertainment and there's animal tourism. And and these are all areas where where non-human animal exploitation can be very high and is very high. Um, and it's legal. You know, all of these things are legal. But then we have the medical industry and cosmetics, hygiene and lab research um, on, on non-human animals. And it comes at a great cost for non-humans. Uh, for example, in, in medical testing, things that we've just recently seen when it comes to, you know, vaccine development, etc. cetera. And these are all uh, activities that are very much hidden from the mainstream's gaze, um, but are problematic and stipulated in terms of, of, of protecting the well-being of humanity. But it doesn't come at the root of exploitation. And it's it's kind of like, well, what's the cost? those animals who are being tested on and and if we look at now recently with COVID-19 there was really limited mainstream discussion that most pandemics in in human history has been based on human exploitative behaviors of non-humans so AIDS, SARS, MERS, Ebola and now COVID-19 you know it's us humans who are cutting down the rainforests we're destroying all these spaces that wildlife have, have lived uh, in, we trap and we cage them and some eat non-humans. And so these activities have a great cost. They have great repercussions on a global level. So, so my point is exploitation uh, actually detrimentally affect us humans. Uh, so I think that a global agenda should better take this into account, which I think the SDGs try. There's, of course, an intent to do that, but don't just quite make it because the way they're framed today is very human
0: centric. You know, since you mentioned the SDGs in your explanations, my brain went scanning those down in terms of, like, in relation to our discussion today, and uh, I, I, I have this kind of question popping up: that whose perspective? or perspectives are we taking when we talk about the global agenda, such as, the, for example, in the SDGs? So is it human-centric or how would you say?
1: Yes, absolutely. They're incredibly human-centric. Um, I, I really like this question about whose perspectives we're taking when we're talking about a global agenda. Um, there's been a lot of critique also on the SDGs, you know, whose, whose agenda are we are we enforcing through this? And if we just look at human populations, there mm-hmm. is, you know, also a a, a, an, a a question of of who who is most responsible for the situation we are in today regarding climate change, regarding biodiversity loss, etc. Um, so there's a larger responsibility for us in the West, definitely. Um, and and there's also in terms of looking at whose perspective we're taking. You know, as a species, um, are we le- really looking at a change at a deep level, at a structural level, focusing on positive planetary change? Or are we actually just kind of supporting this master narrative of human exploitation in them? If we if we if we really look at the SDGs that deal with non-humans, So we have two specific ones. We have number 14, life below water and number 15 life on land both really important goals for conservation and protection of biodiversity but you know what about non-humans in consumption habits so here we're looking at you know number 12 is is about responsible consumption and production non-humans don't factor in there at all what about number two no hunger Um, Here we can think about, you know, how we use grains that are grown um, on Earth to feed livestock, for example. So so we really need to look at these SDGs from a more holistic perspective that take into account nature and non-humans in terms of a justice and care aspect of inclusion. But it's also about, you know, humans that are most vulnerable in, in certain countries that are detrimentally affected by the fact that we don't have a better inclusive understanding of these systems. So the goals are all, the SDG goals are all these human endeavors. It's a really loose framework of doing a little bit better, which of course is is better than nothing. Um, But what about nonhumans? What about fungi and plants? They don't focus on development, they don't focus on sustainability or these human concepts. And I wonder if we could perhaps instead look at the intelligence in such systems for answers. And of course, these are certain aspects that rewilding and and other um, very important agendas take forward. But I really would like to end, I guess, my my answer to your to, to this question with another question is how can we have SDGs and a global agenda when the way they're formulated now are separating us from the rest of the planet?
0: A really good question and I think uh, that might be some, I wouldn't take it as a critique, I would take it as a development point because uh, SDGs are also set for 2030 and the development doesn't stop over there it's not a sustainable way to kind of consider that so i'll take it that way how would you describe humans relationship to non-human animals historically and um well i wonder has there been changes to this in the last centuries decades and if you have any insight how maybe i know it's a hard question maybe <laughs> it's,
1: it's it's a hard question to get a short answer for yes. <laughs> so, but I mean, the short answer is uh, from today's perspective. Then yes, of course, domestication of non-human animals has given us a completely different trajectory of human civilization, uh, both structurally, but also in terms of narratives. Um, you know, agriculture and domestication brought a lot more abundance of food and other comforts to humans and some other animals. Uh, and we learn to control nature in in some senses, in some ways. And for many of us, this shift also today means that we've lost touch with how our food is grown and what these processes really entail. Because the products that we eat are so neatly packaged and and, and sanitized by marketing professionals and in supermarkets. So there has been this huge shift. Uh, and and different trajectory. The first was about you know agricultural revolution, then the industrial revolution. We have this huge animal industrial complex today, that is totally different from uh, historically seen you know small farms, etc. We're talking about these huge industrial complexes um, of, of of factory farms where nonhumans are bred and killed in mass numbers. To supply the, the the increasing demand for animal-based proteins in the world, and and this is just every year increasing because more and more people are 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 we have more and more people. We're almost at eight billion. We will be at eight billion at the end of 2022. And if we think about that, a- each year around 90 billion land-based uh, animals are slaughtered, and between one to three trillion uh, aquatic non-humans such as fish etc are slaughtered for for our eight billion humans then we're really talking about a huge example of exploitation and instrumentalization of other beings um, and like we mentioned before you know it's also about you know who 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 is taking care of these processes you know humans suffer also in these um, so the victims aren't not non-human animals, but all animals, when we're talking about the animal industrial complex. Of course, non-human animals pay the greatest price through their body parts, um, their offspring, their babies, and their short and and very often cruel lives uh, and and end end of life experience in the slaughtering process. Um, Yeah, so I think that a post-human effect affirmative ethics what it does and what I try to do in that chapter in the book is that it, necess- it, it it creates this shift in human-centric thinking to to really look at and highlight different exploitative practices in how we interact with other animals in order to create this potentiality of a more kind uh, responsible and just future and it's this heightened sense of response ability and relational understanding
0: i really like how you put it the response ability because that's emphasizing that uh its ability to respond because i feel sometimes responsibility is not uh, understood in the right way it's really about i think more actions rather than, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but can we dive in a little bit more about what does stand behind the response ability? How are we human consumers given awareness of the conditions of non-humans in the industry process and so on?
1: Yeah, wonderful. And 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 this is really, um, I think, a highlight when we're talking about responsible organizing as well. You know, what is our response ability to organize in? better ways than perhaps today. So, um, you know, looking at what emotions arise in us when we, when we see the reality or we witness the reality for, for non-human uh, animals in these systems uh, that really keep them enslaved generation after each other and, and, and looking at what power do I have in my daily choices and what positional power do I have at work For example, to improve on the lives of non-humans rather than keeping business going as usual. So keeping exploitation going and maybe asking, how does this reflect on our business practices? And I think really um, foremost, we need to be quite courageous um, because it's really about looking at um, activities and systems that are so culturally ingrained in us that we need to, to, like you say, have the ability to respond, but have the ability to respond in a better way, perhaps uh, than is, you know, just the status quo. Again, coming back to what we said before about then those individuals who are working in those industries, you know, I'm just paying somebody else to do these dirty tasks of extracting value from non-humans, whether it's their body parts or, 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 you know, entertainment value. So I think that it's really important to, to acknowledge the fact that as humans, we're faced with a moral choice, you know, two to three times a day, depending how often we eat, you um, know, whether we're conscious of it or not. And it's the same thing with research, um, especially research when we want to research something that's responsible, organizing or sustainable. You know, how can we organize life and work activities that benefit all life rather than just my own or those closest to me?
0: Like, What about the annual protection organizations in this case?
1: Yeah, so definitely animal protection organizations are important actors, um, but there's also a wide continuum of, of of different types of animal protection organizations, but per definition, they're intended to protect animals. Um, but but, you know, it's also a range of how much the animals interests are considered or which mm-hmm. species of animals and to what degree. So in my PhD, for example, when I, w- I was doing research in an animal welfare organization, uh, this is just an example from the field. It was very interesting t- for me as a vegan to be working in this organization and we were trying to protect dogs and cats and you know what we would call pets. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we were having um, events. Uh, fundraising events where they had, you know, meat based products that were trying to get in donations for these animals we were protecting. So so here we see this paradox. There's these vast differences between animal welfare and rights. You know, how much care and justice do we want? Uh, You know, it's You know, and who do we care about? Is it just dogs and cats? Or do we actually care about pigs and cows and chicken as well? Yeah, because I I really think that we're missing out on a lot of things when when we disregard uh, non-humans and in some ways, you know, some of our human history is about partnership also with animals and there is this bond instrumentalized it today in many ways because of our industrial society. Um, exactly. And, yeah.
0: Yeah, I totally get you. I also like not speaking about animals, like my friends been growing tomatoes during the pandemic times of their balconies and. It really sounds very funny, but those become my precious tomatoes, you know, they care about them, they mean yeah. they mean so much to them, so I don't know if you can get the bond with a tomato, but I, it seems like you can really, so, and the, it's about the supply chain and proximity, as you said, because uh, they followed the growing process from the seed to a tomato on your uh, salad plate, so they really followed up on the entire process of the production system to like from the farmer to the table so it it gives the example that uh, how your value how the value change when you actually get to see the process from the beginning and I think it would be so much different with uh, animal products because uh, I think previously in your comment you mentioned that it's, it gets so sterilized with the uh, marketing and production systems that some people might not even realize when they go to supermarket for another chicken pack that uh, there's animal behind that.
1: And and I, I I think I would use the word sanitized rather than sterilized because sanitized mm-hmm. is really pre- creating this value that that it's okay because yeah. if 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 we had a picture <laughs> like we have on tobacco packages mm-hmm. um, on all all animal products you know where this comes from then maybe some well let's just say that I think there would be an effect um in 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 what we would buy but you know I, I i so so you're absolutely correct i love this example you have about the tomato because yeah. this is this is exactly how it is you know when we have a relationship with a non-human or anybody else whether it's the land it's an uh, you know another animal or it's 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 a tomato plant whatever and we're Tending it, so giving food and water, etc. Of course, we start caring about it. So it's really about who do we care about? I guess coming still back to your question about this, this, these stakeholders, I say that you know also researchers and and government agencies have a lot to say here. Um, like I, I like to bring up this the Dasgupta review from 2021. Um, as, as a really important one that, that, that found that the planet is being put at this extreme risk uh, because of the way we see economics today. Because economics doesn't really take into account the true value of nature that then includes, of course, non-human animals. So it's really important when we have these big big societal reports to understand that we need to actually then put these, these findings in action. So incorporating different worldviews and different knowledge systems um, that can help us create a better sustainable future and then second to then change policy and planet planning so that, you know, these types of value systems don't affect our global agenda and how best to care for each other and the planet. So we really need a full system change of how we think about stakeholdership yes. <laughs> and decision making and and also, you know, granting legal rights and protection to non-humans um, if we're serious about tackling climate breakdown and diversity loss. Some countries have done this. We haven't in Finland yet.
0: Yeah, uh, in your book chapter, you do talk a lot about the accreditation schemes, and since we do build on top of that, we would probably need to rebuild the entire system. Would that something, the accreditation schemes, protect the animal voice from that? Well,
1: uh, animal voice is is a difficult topic. And in my chapter, I really tried to look at, um, you know, accreditation schemes, whether or not that Mm -hmm. would be one way of including animal interests in in the marketplace. And of course in my chapter I kind of come up what I said before as well that it really depends on whose interests we're looking at. Uh, so are we looking at you know all animals or just certain animals. So if we're if 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 we're looking at the RSPCA schemes, accreditation schemes of, of for example, cage-free eggs, you know, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that those Chickens in those uh, systems have, you know, very good rights or voice, but it's better maybe than 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 pure those that are not accredited at all. But then we have on the other spectrum, you know, PETA-approved uh, products that then just exclude animals totally. And maybe because of the systems that we have today, that would be the most ethical way forward for for many of us. But I think it's really important to to think about the fact that uh, we have really limited understanding as humans about animal cognition today. So so how do we how do we know what a non-human wants? So animal cognition is this field that's really interesting and, and very important when we talk about responsible organizing. Um, and knowing what non humans think, want, or prefer. So, usually, what I teach or I mention this topic in, in classes or to others, I refer to the Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness from uh, 2012. So, so, 10 years ago now, exactly. Um, you know, was the first time that a big group of, of really prominent scientists in, in a lot of different disciplines came together in Cambridge and they reached this scientific consensus that humans are not the only conscious beings and that the weight of the scientific evidence. So over 2500 peer reviewed articles said that non-human animals and now we're including mammals and birds and a lot of other creatures such as octopuses that they possess these neurological substrates that create consciousness. So, so, so here we have, you know, over 10 years ago, we had this group of of scientists that said. Animals have consciousness. And so this then scientifically disproves that other animals are machines. So this Cartesian duality uh, that a lot of our systems are based on. So, so we have now today the scientific evidence that that other animals experiences are highly complex, but unfortunately, this isn't evident in, in how most humans generally treat other animals today in our processes and societies. So, so it becomes lost in these supply chains, it becomes lost in protocol and standardizations and, and profit maximization for shareholders. So. Um, Yeah, this is very important to bring up this, you know, aspect of animal voice and cognition. We have the scientific evidence, but it's not mainstream recognized yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's especially not visible for a basic consumer. I mean, if you shop in a supermarket, you can't get that close to the producer. And I'm not talking about the person, person the company uh, uh, packing your food. I'm talking about the one that is actually at the very, very early stage of the supply chain, like dealing like daily with the animals that, for example, are then uh, taking into the food production. So coming back to our listeners, I think I really want some kind of outcomes that would be useful for them as a basic consumers, Uh, how they on their daily basis can improve how they interact with non-human animals and sort of uh, with choices they make, uh, support animal welfare as consumers and uh, human animals. I think
1: that the core is really to look at, do my choices today support, care and respect for other animals? Do do my choices protect them and cause the least harm? Um, Whether those are personal consumption choices or work-based decisions. Um, You know, taking this personal and professional responsibility and, and accountability is really important to change from how we've acted towards other animals, uh, how we exploit them today, and instead choose a kinder, more compassionate way forward. It would create a kinder society. um, And of course, you know, care and compassion towards animals or other animals extend to nature uh, as well as our fellow humans. So I think that it's really important to look at Uh, decisions or choices of how can we be the most wise stewards of the natural world for non-humans but you know also including ourselves as humans um, because we're part of the natural world and the system so how can we be how can we be these wise stewards of, of what we have rather than exploit and 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 dominate and extract this this history of extraction um that separates us from the rest of nature and i really believe that how we relate to to other animals is one of humanity's greatest tests and challenges today uh, as well as evolutionary so so in becoming more humane humans um is 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 the way forward i think and isn't that kind of what we would want, especially looking at the situation of the world today.
0: Yeah, I like how you phrase in the beginning, do the choices I make. I really want to remember that because uh, even the way how you put it, it uh, kind of offers you an opportunity throughout this question to take a responsibility and it's uh, also a personal responsibility. So the choices I make. So. It- it immediately brings up the relevance for you as a human. So it's very personal, but also there's a part of choices. So given that you can not make a different choice. So if you see the impact of your choice, you can, as a human, you can rethink what you're doing and you can make a better choice tomorrow when you go, for example, shopping for your grocery basket in a way. So that can be like from broad level, taking to the very personal experience that our listeners might do like I don't know after they finish listening to this podcast, for example. <laughs> yes, Linda. Well, I think that's has been extremely useful and interesting, and I think there are so many details that would really like could be a single podcast on their own because this uh, subject is both I wouldn't say it's new, but it's uh, not widely spoken about at least. Uh, uh, we, in our podcast, for example, we did hear more about, as you mentioned before, about the human centric rather than the animal centric. So there's definitely uh, room for speaking more and raising more awareness around this topic. So in that sense, I'm very thankful that you found your time and that kind of we had an opportunity to talk with experts uh, around uh, this topic. And of course, at the end, I always try to share what I take for myself from uh, our discussion. And uh, I really like how you put it in your book chapter, Linda, like listening to animal voices is something we must learn. And we wish to continue uh, if we want still to share the planet with other non-human life. And I think that really brings the meaning and priority of this question that we discussed today, because there is no way how we can uh, Get ourselves away from the natural system. So, we are part of it. So, there is the priority of this question in a sense. Uh, Yeah. And of course, uh, those examples that we brought up, like my personal example about the dog, about tomatoes, so all different ones, uh, through those kind of examples, you get to experience uh, connection, uh, importance of proximity. So, uh, when you get to see uh, animals close, so you do understand that they are not. objects. They are, they are animals and they, they do have their own belief system, as we mentioned, and they have their own world behind them, which we also must learn to understand, appreciate and uh, take into account. So we thank our listeners for today, for this episode, and uh, of course, we hope that you stay tuned for other episodes of Sustainability Unwrapped. And uh, I must mention that they all originate from the book we recently published at Hankin that uh, explores the concepts around uh, responsible organizing. So if you're looking for more topics around uh, responsible organizing, and especially what's important, practical examples, Um, of transformative actions please get yourself a hard copy of the book transformative action for sustainable outcomes uh, thank you everyone and uh, we see you in the next season of sustainability and